Good morning. How you doing, 11 o'clock? Oh, we are well caffeinated and ready to go. Hey, we are glad that you're joining us here this morning. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome to Rocky Peak. My name is Dre. I'm one of the pastors here. Now, before I get started, I have to acknowledge that today is a national holiday, isn't it? So being that it is, I feel inclined to ask, Patriot fans, that's been met with booze at every service. Seahawk fans. Or people like me that you're rooting for the commercials because your team got knocked out. It hurts, doesn't it? Go Niners. So, people are like, oh, you like a bad team. Oh, well, thank you for your care. Hey, as you, as you came into service this morning, you were given a program. If you would open that up, inside is a message note sheet. That's a great tool that's going to help you follow along with the message. Or if your team didn't make it to the Super Bowl, you want to write a poem about what can happen next year, you got some space to do it there. I'm going to pray and we're going to get started. Father, thank you for who you are. Father, thank you that as you've called us to live an epic life, that we have the model of an epic God that goes with us. Thank you that you didn't call us and leave us on our own to figure this out, but you dwell with us, you walk with us, you teach us, you rebuke us, you grow us, Jesus. And we pray that as we open up your word, the source of wisdom, the living and active word, that I as the communicator become less, but that you as God become much, much more. Jesus, we commit this time to you. In your son's name, we all said, amen. Hey, well, once again, if you're here for the first time, I not only want to welcome you again, but I want to take just a few minutes here at the top to bring you up to speed into the series we've been in. Since about the beginning of the year, we've been in a series called Epic the Vision. Now, what we've been doing in this series is that we have been taking a look at the New Testament letter of, the, of Ephesians. Now, Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul. And what he's doing is he's, is he's writing to Christ followers in the region of a major city in the ancient Roman Empire, the city of Ephesus. Now, what Paul is doing through Ephesians is that he's sharing God's vision for all of creation. And as the title of the series says, this is an epic vision, that God has a vision for us that started before he even created us that God's vision was being worked out then as it's being worked out now in real time, and that God's vision will ultimately come to fruition when Jesus comes back. Now, for the last three or four weeks, pretty much since we've started this series, we've spent the majority of our time in the first chapter in verses 3 to 14. If you remember, the Hebrew, word, the Hebrew word for that section is called the Barakah, which is an extended, extended time of worship and praise. Paul was talking about how incredible our Jesus is and what he's done for us. Salvation, the Holy Spirit, now we are the temple because of him. And so now we're going to be transitioning out of that, that Paul has now laid the foundation, and now what he's going to do is he's going to pray for believers, and he's going to pray that the God that started a good work in you, that you would see that he is continuing to work in you. And so if you've got your Bibles or your apps, we're going to continue with this prayer. There in your note sheet, you've got a section titled The Prayer, and we're going to be going to Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to be starting at verse 15. Now, as you're turning there, let me set up a little bit of context. 
The Barakah, the section we were in before, if you remember, Mike had shared that that in Greek is one long sentence. Now, Paul's prayer, we're going to be starting in verse 15 and closing out the chapter, again, is another long sentence. So what we're going to be doing is we're going to be experiencing the Apostle Paul in the best definition of the phrase going off about what he's the most excited about, what Jesus is doing in the life of believers. And what I want you to see in his prayer is that his prayer has three distinct sections. First, we're going to see that he gives thanks for these believers. Then what we're, we're going to see is he's going to pray a, a prayer of intercession. He's going to petition on behalf of believers. And then he's going to close his prayer with a proclamation. So let's jump in, read, starting at verse 15. For this reason... Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So let's stop right there. Paul is affirming the fact that they have not only given their life to Jesus, but their lives have been so transformed by Jesus that they're now putting their money where their mouth is and they're living out their faith. See, this is pretty impressive, that word about them is traveling, because they're living in a pre-social media and Google world. This is how complete the transformation of God was in their lives, that they now love Jesus, and they're loving other people. And now what we're going to see is Paul starts off by affirming them, and now he's going to intercede for them. And I want you to catch that Paul is going to pray for them what he feels is the most essential thing a Christ follower can do to continue to grow in our walk with Jesus. So let's read together. Starting at verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. If you have your Bible and a pen, if you have an app that's capable of highlighting, I want you to highlight that phrase so that you may know him better. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Let's stop right here and let's unpack this. What is Paul praying for these believers? Now that you've experienced Jesus, now that you have been given his spirit, now that you are the new temple, the very dwelling place of God, you know that God is awesome and I am praying that you would experience more. Experience more of God. Because what happened when we became the temple was not a one-and-done experience. When we gave our lives to Jesus, when he forgave us of our sins, and he chose us to now be his very dwelling place, what happened is he radically transformed us for all of eternity. That means that because God dwells with us, we now have a radically new one-on-one -on -one relationship with God that we did not have before. It is now personal. And Paul is sending this message that what you experienced was incredible and it was just the beginning. And so if I can only pray one thing over you, Christ followers, experience more of Jesus. See, he says, I want you to experience, to know him. 
And Paul is coming from an Old Testament perspective when he says, so that you would know him better. He's not talking about knowing facts about him. But in the Old Testament, when it talked about knowing God, it meant developing a deeper, personal, one-on-one relationship with God. And you know what's incredible about this prayer is that he's not praying for them at a time of crisis. There's not a tragedy going on in their lives. There's not, there, he's not talking to a church that's going through a season of apathy. He's talking to people who are on fire. And so to paraphrase, he's saying, you are experiencing something incredible. And, if you, and to try to wrap your minds around the fact that there's even more out there. He's praying for more. Look at verse 18, because he starts painting a clear picture of what he's talking about. First, he prays that the eyes of our heart would be opened or enlightened. Again, Paul has come, is writing from a Jewish background in the Old Testament as an educated Jewish man, how they understood heart was not simply emotions, but they understood the heart to be the command center of the entire body. So Paul referring to their heart is akin to him referring to your entire being, everything that makes you, you. And so what he's saying is Jesus has completely changed everything you are now with everything you now are, I want you to experience more. And if you look back at verse 18, he listed three specific areas in which he wants his readers to experience more. So that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. So let's talk about those three. He wants you to experience more hope because of Jesus. Because before Jesus, we had no hope, did we? Before Jesus, we had no hope because we didn't know what our identity was. We had no hope because we had no purpose. Before Jesus, we had no hope of eternity or a future because we were living in sin. But now because of Jesus, we have not a, not a fanciful, man, I really hope this works out definition of hope, but we have a concrete hope because Jesus is who he has said he is. Jesus has forgiven us of our sins. Jesus has restored us in our true identity, Jesus has now given us the Holy Spirit, and now we have a hope for our future. Experience more of that. The second thing is experience more of the inheritance, more of what the Holy Spirit means in your life. We talked about this last week during service that the Holy Spirit is a deposit of what's to come, right? But as well, the Holy Spirit is a marker that because of Jesus, your identity is completely changed. The Holy Spirit dwelling in you is a marker that you are now part of a brand new race, the race that God will use to populate the new heavens and the new earth. The Holy Spirit is a marker of the extraordinary value that God places on former sinners that have been saved by Jesus experience more of that. And the last thing is experience more of God's incredible power. How did Jesus do this? How did he save us? How did he restore us? How did he restore our hope in our future? He did it through his incomparable power. 
Now, what Paul is going to do next in our scripture is something that Paul often does is we get sometimes mixed up or confused as to what it means, what it means that God is powerful. So Paul is going to spend the next few verses painting a picture of what it means that God has ultimate power. And I want to encourage you as we read along together to really picture the portrait of Jesus Paul is painting. So let's read together. Going back to verse 19. And his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So let's stop right there. When you take a step back and you look at the whole of Paul's writings, you see two very core truths that motivate him, that motivate his ministry. One, to Paul, there is no greater act or demonstration of God's love than the crucifixion of Jesus for our sins. But secondly, to Paul, there is no greater demonstration of God's ultimate power than the resurrection of Jesus. See, to Paul... The resurrection of Jesus, as I've used the phrase before, was not a one-and-done event. But to Paul, the resurrection of Jesus was, was an event that changed the entirety of the cosmos from that point on for all of eternity. To Paul, the resurrection of Jesus was the catalyst for the resurrection of believers. And to Paul, the resurrection of Jesus was a very clear sign that God's victory is complete. And he goes on to paint this picture that God not only resurrected Jesus, but he enthroned Jesus See, we often have this view or this image of Jesus as being the suffering servant or being the humble carpenter. And Paul is painting this picture of what the resurrected Jesus is like, that the New Testament, when it refers to the resurrected Jesus, it does not refer to merely an inhabitant of heaven, but it refers to the king of heaven. And so Paul is telling us that Jesus was resurrected and seated at the right hand of God. In the Old Testament, it, makes, it paints a very clear picture that the right hand of God was a position of favor, was a position of power, was a position of victory. And in the book of Revelation, it talks about that the right hand of God shared the authority that God the Father has. And so as we read this, as we go through, if you look back at verse 21, you see that Paul starts listing out various designations of titles, of authorities, of positions, of what we would perceive to be power. And he's not just talking about earthly positions, he's talking about supernatural, spiritual positions, and he talks about time. And the point that Paul is making is that our Jesus is supreme, meaning no power that has ever been or ever will be on this earth in on this earth, in this universe, or in this spiritual supernatural world will ever come close to being equal to the power of God. Anything else has got nothing compared to the supremacy of Jesus. And he paints this picture to remind us that is the God that dwells in you. And so when he prays, experience more. This is the God he's telling us to experience more of. 
Because not only is God supreme, but he makes himself known to his church in relationship. Look at how Paul puts it as we continue to read. Verse 22, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything and every way. So we talked about the fact that because of Jesus, our relationship with him is radically different. We now have a new fellowship with him. So that means that Jesus, the supreme Jesus, is now in charge of the gathering, this local congregation, the church, but the supreme Jesus is now also in charge of you as the individual church. And what that means is that you, as an individual Christ follower, as the temple of God, you now have a radical new way to interact with God, meaning it's now personal when before it wasn't. He is now our head, and as Paul closes out that verse, he will give us everything we need to the fullness of everything we need forever and ever. And you could just hear people screaming amen at the end of Paul's prayer. Make it so, because that's the point he's trying to make. See, he paints that picture because as we started this series, if you remember, Mike had said that in Jesus' eyes, you are more than you think you are. Well, it's also important to acknowledge Paul's proclam- the truth that Paul is proclaiming, that God is more than we would ever think he is as well. This teaching, the supremacy of Christ, was a very core teaching in the early church And the reason why it was a core teaching in the early church is because they were proclaiming this message that what other people saw as this humble carpenter who came from a no-name town and died a traitor's death, well, he was exactly who he said he was. And because of his death and his resurrection, God's victory is complete. Amen. And that's the God that Paul is encouraging us to experience more of. That's awesome, isn't it? And so that's our scripture. And what I want to do is I want to take Paul's words to heart and I want to unpack what does that look like to experience more of Jesus in our lives. So there on your note sheet, you've got a section titled The Impact of More. Because when we experience more, it impacts us in significant ways. And your first fill-in is this. There is more to experience in your walk with God. There is more to experience in your walk with God. Now, something that I'm very passionate about is I love to read. I love to read just about anything I get my hands on. I've loved to read since I was a kid. And one of my favorite reading experiences has always been um, just getting lost in a book, like a long book series. One of my favorite book series has actually been the Chronicles of Narnia. I really have enjoyed that series. But like any awesome book series, what I really value is when I get to sit down and I read the first entry in that series. And you start falling in love with this world. You start falling in love with this char- these characters and the themes it presents. But I also love that feeling that when you end that first entry, that you see that there's multiple books that follow, and you get excited because you know you're going to experience more on this journey. And that's one way I like to picture Paul's message in this prayer. 
that it doesn't matter how long you've been walking with Jesus. It doesn't matter how short or how, or how the length of time in your life you've been doing it. There is always more to experience. See, there might be some of you in here today that maybe you're not a Christ follower. For whatever reason, you haven't given your life to Jesus. And the more that Paul is praying for you is that you see that there's far more to this world than what we see. And that you see that Jesus is real. That Jesus loves you in a passionate way you could never fathom and wants to change your life completely from the inside out for all of eternity. And that's your more. There's some of you in here that maybe you're a newer Christ follower. It's been in the recent history that you gave your life to Jesus in what I call a beautiful act of repentance, where you asked him to forgive you of your sins and to take control to be the leader in your life. And your more is to experience, like I mentioned earlier, that that is a beautiful beginning. And that there's a lot that you're going to experience in your journey. And there's some of you in here that you've been walking with Jesus for a long, long time, 10, 20, 50, 80 years, wherever your journey has taken you. And your more that Paul is praying for you is that there will always be more depths to the love of Christ. There will always be more depth to the character of who God is and how he sees you. That somehow in only a supernatural way that only God can do, his timeless truths will always seem fresh and new. And that's Paul's prayer for you that you would experience more. See, for long-term believers, I like what the author of Lamentation says in chapter 3. He says that God's compassions never fail. They are new every morning. I remember when I was first starting off in vocational ministry, and I remember at the time I was meeting with an older pastor for guidance and wisdom, and he had been in ministry for truly at the time, maybe 40, 50 years. And I remember one time I asked him just, hey, how are you doing today? And he looks at me and he smiles. He's like, Dre, gosh, God is teaching me new things every day. And I was so impacted and blown away by that. This was, a, this was a strong man of God who walked with Jesus for numerous years, and yet Jesus was still showing him more. See, Paul's charge in his prayer was do not stop seeking more of Jesus. Another way of putting that, Paul's charge to believers then and now is do not become complacent when it comes to pursuing Jesus in your life. Do not stop experiencing more because there will always be more to experience. And the reason why there is more is because of that infinite supreme Jesus that Paul described. There will always be more because we as limited human beings can't even come close to fathom just how massive our God is. I remember hearing a preacher once years ago that was talking about a similar topic. And he, he gave the analogy that if you in your head right now, and some of us have some great imagination, tried to picture your biggest thought of how you would describe God and know that that wouldn't even come close. In your note sheet, I put down one of my favorite pastors, Louis Giglio. I like how he describes it. The truth is feeling small may not be so bad if in recognizing our smallness, we come to realize the wonder of God. A God who is beyond our ability to fully describe or imagine yet someone we are privileged to know, love, and embrace. God is infinite, and it's hard for me as a not-infinite being 
to wrap my mind, try to wrap my mind around that. But because he is infinite, because he is supreme, that is my guarantee that there will always be more to experience when it comes to God. Now, the reason why Paul prays this, the reason why this is so important and relevant to us as Christ followers still is because how big you and I perceive God to be is going to directly impact how aggressively you pursue him. How big you perceive God to be is going to have a direct impact on how aggressively you pursue him. What I mean by that is that in your view, if God is big, powerful for us, is who he says he is, then we're going to run after that God with everything we have. But if in our view, God is small, manageable, I know better than he does, I fit him in a box, we are not going to pursue that God. And that's when we become complacent in our faith. So let's wrestle with that truth a little bit. Because the truth is, this has happened in my life, this happens in our lives, that we go through times, we go through seasons where we take this amazing God and in our perception, we shrink him down to something he's not. And how do we do that? Well, the underlying reason is sin. We shrink God down in our eyes because of our sin. And that sin can manifest itself in different ways. We can shrink God down when we choose habitual sins over him. Because we can choose these sins that we are taking part in regularly and go, okay, I know God may not want me to do this. Maybe the Bible says not to do this. But you know what? I feel like if I do this, it's going to give me something I want, something God is not giving me, something God is not lacking, excuse me, something God is lacking, or something God might be holding out on. And so in those moments, we choose the sin over God. Therefore, we shrink him. Or sometimes... This sin manifests itself in how we label our priorities. See, sometimes as Christ followers, we know the right phrases to say, hey, Jesus is my priority. Jesus is the most important thing in my life. But oftentimes I need to be honest with myself that if I put priorities on an organizational chart, God may be below different things. Maybe he's below good things, great things but he's still not the priority from which everything else comes out of. And so maybe I try to take God and maybe I try to cram him into these priorities. Okay, maybe I can try to get some time in with him here or cram it in there. And what we're doing is we're shrinking God because we are sending this unspoken message that I will get to spending time with God when the really important stuff in my life is done. Or sometimes we shrink God through the sin of laziness. Any relationship to do it well takes work, doesn't it? It takes genuine effort. We're not going to just be good friends. We're not going to just be good spouses. We're not just going to be good parents or good sons or daughters or good employees. It actually takes effort. And sometimes the sin kicks in where we sit there and go, well, God's been doing the majority of the work. Let him just keep doing it and drop it in my lap. And we shrink God. Or sometimes we shrink God through the sin of arrogance. There's nothing more God can show me because I know everything there is to know about him. 
And this sin could be because of different things, maybe because we've grown up in the established church, maybe because of levels of education we've had, I've been to seminary and all that, and we sit there and go, I don't need them to teach through the book of Ephesians again. I've been hearing that 20 times over the course of my life. There's nothing new that can show me. Shrinks God. And we could go on and on and on, but the reality is when we shrink our perception of God, that stops us from pursuing God. And when we stop pursuing God, we stop experiencing him one-on-one. We stop experiencing who God is in our lives. And when we stop experiencing God, it opens up a much bigger danger that now we start living a Christian life that's a C average at best, and we know it, and we start becoming okay with it. We know it. Because there's amazing ways for us to interact with Jesus. There's amazing ways for us to see more, such as being in his word, such as praying with him, such as fellowshipping at a time like this, such as being silent and listening to him or listening to music and singing our hearts out. But when we have a small view of God, we don't have a big view of those relationship habits. We have a small view of them. And instead of being excited about spending time with God, in a small view of God, we view those disciplines as chores. I don't really want to do it. Maybe I'll get to it, but there's a lot of other stuff to do first. It becomes a chore in our life, and we start accepting that. We start using language and terminology to our family, friends, and in life groups. Hey, I know I should be spending time with God, but I'm not. And sometimes we might say kind of the churchy phrase, I'm not. Why don't you pray for me so I can, you know, like I, I can do that. But the reality is I'm not because I don't want to. And it's not going to change anything. And we become okay with phoning in our relationship with God. Now, here's what I love about Paul's prayer. Paul's prayer is not built on guilt. He's not praying to these believers and going, hey, I heard you missed a quiet time last week. I heard you didn't do your life group homework. How dare you? But do you realize that Paul's prayer is built on excitement of the truth of the reality of who Jesus is? And so Paul, in the best way possible, is saying, experience more of Jesus because as a brother who loves you, I don't want you to miss out. Because if you don't experience Jesus, what would you be missing out on? Well, again, Paul lists some clear things, and I, and I put them in your note sheet in a paraphrase. If you look on your note sheet, you got three blanks. When we experience more of Jesus, we experience more of the first one, who God is. We experience more of the second one, his promises. And we experience more of how we now live. When you come to Jesus, it's because you come to the realization that Jesus loves you and you fall in love with him. But the more you experience Jesus, you experience more of who he is, meaning you experience new depths of how much he loves you, and you fall even more in love with him. Think about any core long-term relationship you've ever had. Think about those people that you would consider people you truly love, whether they're friends, family, whoever they may be. And think about the fact that the longer that relationship has gone, the more in love you've become with that person, right? 
I think of something like a marriage, to use that analogy, that in a few weeks, my wife and I are going to be celebrating our nine-year wedding anniversary. And I remember when we got married, I remember when she turned that aisle and I got to see her for the very first time and I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt everything I am is in love with her. And now nine years later, I look back on that and I go, man, if I knew I was in love with her then, but the way I love her now is much deeper than what I felt then and it's grown over time. And parents, you've experienced the same thing that you were in love with your kids when you first saw them, but as they've grown, even though they drive you crazy sometimes, Times. You know that, man, I still love them. Or those core friends that are like brothers and sisters. Man, we were great friends however many years ago, but we have grown in that love. What happens when you experience more of that two-way love? You fall more in love with that person and you realize that they are more in love with you. So Paul is saying, don't miss out on how much God loves you. And you're going to fall even deeper in love. There's more to your depths of your love for him. The second thing is his promises. Man, if somebody in your life, again, in one of those core relationships, has promised, I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to stand with you. I'm not going to abandon you in the ups and the downs. The longer you've been in those relationships, haven't you realized new depths of those promises? Because you can look at that friend, that spouse, that father, that mother, that leader, whoever it may be, that person that promised you something, and you see all those years later that they've kept it, and you sit there and go, wow, you meant it. That's great. And when we experience more of God, we experience more of the fact that he has promised to be with us. He has promised to love us no matter what. He has promised to guide us, to teach us, to rebuke us. He has promised to work always for our good. He has promised to give us an eternity we can't even imagine. And we can experience more of that. And what Paul doesn't want us to miss out on is our identity, how we now live. See, the more we experience with the more we experience of Jesus, the more we have our new identity, our restored identity as his sons or daughters continually reaffirmed. Because I don't know about you, but I know in my struggles, I sometimes forget who I am. I sometimes buy into this identity that the world is telling me I am. I sometimes lose sight of the fact that God has chosen me, that God loves me. So the more I'm with him, the more he affirms not just who I am, but the incredible value I have in his eyes. Paul is not praying for believers to experience more of God because he's trying to guilt you into this. He's trying to share this wonderful excitement with us. Experience more of Jesus in your life. So what does this look like? Well, let's talk practically. I want to just share two truths of the time we have left. So there in your note sheet, you've got a section titled Experiencing More. And the first fill-in is this. Ask for a new passion. Ask for a new passion. Pray to Jesus and say, Father, give me a new passion to experience more of you. And why pray? 
Because if we go back to verse 17, Paul talks about the fact that it's the Holy Spirit, it's God who reveals himself to us. This doesn't happen under our own power and our own steam. But because we have the Spirit, we can ask and he will reveal. And the reason I like the word passion is because passion really is key when it comes to our relationship with God. Think about anything in your life that you are passionate about. And we, as a variety of people, we're passionate about a lot of different things, aren't we? It's the Super Bowl today. There are a lot of passionate sports fans, a lot of passionately bitter sports fans as well today. But there's a lot of passionate sports fans. You can look at any type of sports fans and you see passion. Take about people that are passionate about their family, about a spouse or about their kids. Take people that are passionate about their friendships. Take people that are passionate about their works or their careers. Take people that are passionate about their church or about a cause. Take people that are passionate about hobbies, restoring cars, watching movies, eating, which is a great hobby of mine. Take people that are passionate and think about it. When you are passionate about something, how do you talk about, how do you interact with? How do you feel about the object with which you're passionate about? And the reality is they're all great adjectives, aren't they? When you're passionate about something, you're excited about it. When you're passionate about something, you care about something or someone. When you're passionate about it, it gives you happiness. It brings you joy. When you're passionate about something, you become defensive over it, don't you? In fact, in some cases, we're passionate about things that we feel like have made our lives better. And it comes out in how we talk about things. I love hearing about people's passions because so many of us have probably had the experience that you could hear someone who's passionate about something you find completely boring. But when you hear their passion about it, it's infectious, isn't it? And even if you still find the item boring, you sit there and go, man, but they are genuinely into this. You don't need to be around me longer than five minutes to know that one of my dumb passions is movies. I really, really love movies. And this played out in my life group a couple of weeks ago. I have a great life group, great life group leaders. And we got on the topic of talking about Star Wars, which is a passion of mine. And my life group leader presented a point of view that I disagreed with, that Return of the Jedi is the best one in the original trilogy. So I passionately, in love and in grace, corrected her. Because I'm sitting there, no, 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 the Empire Strikes Back, not Ewoks, the Empire Strikes Back is the greatest one. And so we went back and forth. But what I love about that experience is we're all smiling, we're all excited because we're talking about something dumb, but that we're passionate about. Now, the reason why passion is key is we were wired and created to be a people of passion. But what happens when we shrink God is that we have all of these things in our lives that we are passionate about, that we talk about with passion, and then we, as Christ followers, come to God and we make them out to be boring. Man, I love these things. They are amazing, and God is okay. And maybe that's not what we would say, but that's how we view it because we've accepted a complacent life. And so if we are going to see more of God, if we are going to change the way we view pursuing God, then what we need to do to seek more is to ask God to give us a God-given passion. Because the problem with our passions is that they're limited. 
See, being human beings, the fact that we're not God means that each and every one of our emotions has a shelf life. And that's the scary thing about passion, isn't it? That sometimes we view it as solely an emotional experience. See, hear me very, very clearly. Emotions are a great part of passion, but emotions fade, emotions end, eventually we come off the mountain, and when we're passionate about something and, we, and that experience ends, we often are left in a state of confusion, especially when we thought we were passionate in a relationship. This breaks a lot of relationships where we sit there and go, well, what happened to the passion we once had? This breaks people's relationship with God where we sit there and go, man, I was really passionate about God, but I feel like it's not there anymore. Did God leave? Did I do something wrong? See, we need a much bigger God-sized view of passion than just solely an emotional experience because if not, then what happens is then we become Christ followers who are only chasing emotional experiences and not chasing Jesus. See, Last weekend, if you were here, was an incredible service for our church. Last Wednesday, if you were here at Encounter, was yet another one. We had a great one-two punch last week. And for many of you, depending on the length of time you've been walking with Jesus, you could probably point to an experience where you've had an incredibly passionate and emotional response to Jesus. Maybe it was through a service like Encounter last weekend. Maybe it was through a camp or a retreat setting. Maybe it was a powerful life group experience. Maybe it was through some family. Sometimes maybe even it was a crisis that showed us a clear picture of Jesus. And those moments, and hear me clearly, those moments truly are a gift and a blessing. Because in those moments, we see Jesus revealed clearly. In those moments, they can often be catalysts to make decisions and changes in our lives. But the reality is we often approach those moments with a limited passion, meaning that those emotions eventually fade, and we can sometimes live in a confusion going, well, what happened? Did God disappear? And so what ends up happening is rather than chasing after Jesus, like I said, we chase those moments because in our minds we think Jesus is only in those moments. The only time I can experience Jesus is in those moments or in those mountaintop experiences. And what we don't realize, the fact that the bigness of God means that the God that revealed himself in those beautiful moments is the God you took with you to your car, is the God that the next day is with you and living with you. He showed himself to you in those moments so that you realize there is never a moment in which you are not with him. And so rather than chasing after these moments, we need to chase after the risen Jesus. And to do that means we need a passion that is not ours, meaning a passion that is not limited. Because those of you in any core relationship knows that when those emotions fade, it is an opportunity to choose something deeper in your relationships. Just like for us, it's an opportunity to ask God for a new God-given passion. God-given passion is like God's love for us, his agapow love for us, meaning God's passion for us is not dependent on emotions or circumstances. It doesn't matter. He loves you. And because he dwells in us, we are capable of receiving that type of passion as well from him to give back to him. 
We need a bigger view of passion. And it doesn't come from us. And when God gives it to us, it changes the way we think about passion. It changes the way we think about him. And it changes the way we think about pursuing him. And we all know as stubborn people, hear me, I'm very stubborn. I need God often to change the way I think because when he does, then I see him as more. There in your note sheet, I loved how the Apostle Paul put it in Romans. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good pleasing and perfect will. I love what Paul is saying in this verse is when you let God change the way you think, when you let God change the way you see the world, then all of a sudden your eyes will be open to the reality that God has been here all along. He's gonna make, he's gonna, you're gonna see him better and he's gonna make more sense. And that is where the God-given passion will start to brew. So how do we get this passion? Like I mentioned, we pray for it. We can pray a simple, profound prayer. Like, Father, give me a passion just like you have for us. Or another simple or profound way to pray for a God-given passion is to pray, is to do what we call pray scripture. Meaning, take a scripture like this. Take verse 18, where Paul lists out those three things, and pray that specifically over yourself. Carve out some time, have it open in front of you, and just simply recite those words. Jesus, I pray that I experience more, that I'm passionate about experiencing more of your hope, of your guarantee for my future, and of your great power. Simple, profound, and something that we can do regularly. So the first step to experiencing more of God is asking for a new passion. And the second step is simply make a plan. Make a plan. I've never been a fan when it comes to God of like, hey, when it comes to experiencing God, I'm just going to figure it out when I get there. Because you know what I've discovered to be true? Like I live at home with my family. I live with my wife. I live with my two kids. And I can be, pr I can be physically present in that house but not present in their lives. So even though I'm in close proximity with these people, I still need to be intentional about spending quality time with them. And the reality is that's true with God. As his temple, we are always in close proximity with him, but we still need to be intentional about spending time with him, about making that quality time and that effort. And so the question I ask when I say make a plan is what are you practically going to do to experience more of him, to pursue him, to see him? Now, there's some of you in this room, there's a lot of you in this room that probably have a great routine and a plan going. You have your time, you have what, how it is you interact with God that works for you, and if that's you, awesome, keep going. And there's some of us in this room that today is a, begin, is a great new beginning, See, when it comes to making a plan, what I don't want you to do is focus on guilt of what you haven't been doing. Let's focus now on this moment and how we will get to experience more of God through our new choices. And so what's your plan? Specifically, like, how are you carving out time? Where is that time going to be? Is it going to be morning? Is it going to be evening? I'm not necessarily asking you to carve out hours upon hours. Where is it going to be these 15 minutes in your day? Is it going to be on a commute? Is it going to be before the kids wake up? Where is your time? And then what are you going to do with that time? 
Are you going to spend some time in the Word? Like, and if you do, where, where do you start with that? Maybe as we go through Ephesians, maybe you're spending some time in Ephesians. Many of your Bible apps that you can download for free, they give great reading plans that help you get started or help you ch- check out some different topics. Maybe it's just praying and talking. Maybe on your drive into work, you're just talking out loud to God and listening to what he's got to tell you that day. Maybe you're worshiping through music. Maybe you're just buying some of the songs we're singing on iTunes and you're just making that part of your day. Whatever it may be, the question is, what is your specific plan? And if your plan looks different from somebody else's plan, awesome, because we're different. It's part of exploring the beautiful diversity of the church. But whatever your plan is, make a plan so that we as Christ followers do not miss out on experiencing more of our incredible Jesus. Amen? I'm going to invite the worship team to come on out. And we're going to end our services uh, with a final time of song. This is also going to be the time when the ushers come forward and we receive our gifts and our offerings. But I want to encourage you, this time of song, let this be an opportunity where you, where you ask Jesus to give you a new passion. Let this be an opportunity where you seek more of him. Where you seek more of his hope. You seek more of his inheritance. You seek more of his power and presence in your life. Here, let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you give us more. Whatever that may be, whatever that looks like in our walk with you, you give us more because as a supreme God, there is always more to experience. And so I pray that as we go into this final time of song, that we just be blown away by how much more of you there is. That we'd be blown away at the fact that there's so much of you that we're gonna gonna continue experiencing that when we leave this building. As we go back to our homes, our family tomorrow, as we go back to our jobs or whatever our days look like, that we continually be seeking more of the God who sought us. Jesus, we love you so very much. And we wanna experience more of your love for us. In your son's name, amen. And stand up and sing together. Hey, so my charge to us as a church is pretty simple. Experience more. Seek more because there is more out there in Jesus, amen? Hey, if you'd like to uh, talk or pray with somebody before you leave service, over to my right, there's our prayer corner with some amazing men and women who'd love to talk with you, uh, pray with you before you leave this place. Next week, really hope you can join us. Uh, Mike is gonna be leading us into chapter two. As we talked about seeing more and some timeless truths, Paul is now going to write to his believers and talk about new depths of what it means that we were dead because of our sins, but we are now alive and living in Christ. It's going to be awesome. So I hope you can be here to join us. We'll see you then.